The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Let's ask God's help. Father, if we rightly understand the parable that your, your son, our Lord, has given us, then every time this word is proclaimed, it's going to find a heart that's like soil. Some trampled down and hard unable to receive any of what is given, just the word snatched away by the enemy before it can amount to much of anything. Some will find immediate reception and it will spring up quickly and there will be all kinds of signs of life, but in the end we'll find that there was no real root. There was no depth. In the end it will amount to nothing. For some, the cares of this world and the desires for riches, just the busyness of life will prove too much and choke it out. Again, while there may be signs of something in the beginning, it will come to naught. But then, Father, there is the good soil, the soil which you have prepared and softened and tilled, made receptive. That this word may find that kind of heart and produce fruit upon fruit upon fruit, fruit that endures and fruit that lasts and fruit that can only be called a great abundance. Father, we desperately want to be that kind of people. And so I ask you, Father, in the moments to come, that you would work in our hearts. You would cause us to be a deep kind of people. People that truly receive and trust in this word. That you would block out all the busyness and the chaos. The earthly desires that might threaten anything that would spring up. I pray, Father, that you would come by your spirit. By your word. That you would do your work. We ask it now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I ask you to go ahead and return to your feet, please. We continue working verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We remain in chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be reading this morning verses 1 through 6. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient authoritative word of God. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all 
and through all and in all. All God's people said. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we continue this morning considering together the, the picture of this worthy walk that the Apostle Paul has given us. He's given us these markers of the cadence and the stride of the truly Christian life. And you remember how he began with humility and patience and gentleness. Then last week we came to a, a bit of an application. The way in which a heart like this responds to the people around us. We considered what it meant to bear with one another in love. How we're to endure frustration and hurt from brothers and sisters in, in this church. Whether that frustration or that hurt or that offense is caused by their quirkiness, just the unique nature of these living stones that the Lord is chiseling and chipping away at and forming into something beautiful. Or whether the offense is caused by outright sin and maliciousness, that, that either way we're to endure, we're to tolerate, we're to bear with one another in love. This means that we're going to refuse, even when we're entitled, we're going to refuse to strike back. We're going to abandon our right to take up offense. We're going to hold our peace. As this word was used as the Lord in the Old Testament, you remember it was said that he was restraining himself in his wrath. Remember, this is an activity that we are taking mostly towards ourselves, not trying to change the other person and trusting them to God. But restraining ourselves and our own anger and any, any rough feelings we might feel towards him. It's just more. I used the word tolerance earlier. It's more than just a tolerance. It's more than just a coexistence. That word in love forbids it. We're going to come to these people in the, in the offense and in the frustration and in the hurt. And we're going to do for them. We're going to relate to them in a way that corresponds with this love. Whatever love for God and love for our neighbor demands. Sometimes that's going to mean gently rebuking them. As James says, we're going to find ourselves being used of God to save their soul as we call them to repentance from the brink of destruction. Sometimes it's going to look like simply overlooking the offense, covering it with love, not drawing their attention to it, not drawing anyone else's attention to it, simply covering it, forgiving them as Christ forgave us. But we must always be ready and willing and eager to extend forgiveness. Always with a heart that desires ultimately true reconciliation. But Paul continues on this morning. Remember this is all flowing out of the therefore. In light of everything that God has done for and to us in redemption. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness. With patience. Bearing with one another in love, and then this morning's focus, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I draw your attention to that word there, eager. Just as our bearing with one another must be marked by love, if it's going to be true and it's going to be biblical and it's going to be Christ-like, if our bearing with one another is going to produce any fruit and it's going to be used of God to purify and sanctify and strengthen this body that he's building, it's got to be marked by love. Just as that is true, if we're going to seek to maintain the unity of the spirit, it must be marked by an eagerness or by a zealousness. You see, it's not enough for us just to be open to the idea. We can't just be unresistant if the opportunity arises. And that, frankly, is the way so many of us respond to this call. Look, I don't reject it outright that I'm meant to be patient and humble and gentle. I, I'm not opposed to the idea of being at peace with you, and I wouldn't reject it if there was opportunity for me to bear with you and to be united to you. But surely you see how that's not nearly enough. What he's calling us to is something much more. He uses the word eager. It's a strong desire. Even an internal compulsion towards something. But surely you know by now that the desire it can't remain in the heart. It must change the way of our living and our working. Remember, this is called a worthy walk. This isn't just called worthy thoughts, worthy ideas, worthy hopes. This is a worthy walk. This is the stride and the pattern of your life. It's the way this thing plays out in your day-to-day -day living with people 
in this faith family that he's building. So it can't just be that we sit around and talk about unity in this room. We go home and we meditate on how nice unity is, what a valuable thing it is, how we wish God would bring unity and then turn around and do nothing with it. Yet again, what we're dealing with is what we know to be true, changing our desires and our affections, and then driving us to do something about it. This really is the pattern, the whole of the Christian life. It's the mind to the heart, to the walking, to the living, to the acting, to the doing. If you miss any one of these parts, if you miss the mind, what you end up with is a man that is zealous with no clue what he's meant to be zealous for. You know, with the kinds of people that are madly in love with a God that never existed and a God that can't actually save them. You've seen these people. You may be yourself at one point in your life were these kinds of people. You're running full speed in the wrong direction. You had faith and you had belief. And isn't that what the world tells you? You just got to have faith. You just got to have belief. Well, then what? If you skip the mind, that's where you end up. Giving yourself over with utmost confidence and belief in something that's a fairy tale. That can do nothing to save you. But, but what happens if you miss the heart? Maybe it remains in the mind and it misses the heart and skips straight to the doing. You end up a, a legalist or a pietist. The kind of person that believes that the whole of the Christian life is learning to hold your nose and eat your broccoli. It's learning and maybe even pretending to do things that you really don't want to do. So it, so it can't just remain in the mind. It's got to infiltrate and affect the heart and the will and the desires. But it can't remain there in the heart. It's got to come out in the doing. Otherwise, then you're just a hypocrite. You say all the right words. You have all the right thoughts. But the pattern of your life, it doesn't match it at all. Now, sadly, I found myself missing on each one of these three at various parts in my life. I'm an equal opportunity offender. And, and you know, there's great difficulty in that. Any of you that have ever tried to take up the sport of golf, you know that kind of one of the things that you hope for is that you only have one miss. Like you always miss to the right. And if you always miss to the right, you know which way to compensate. You know which way the danger is. The problem is when you get out there and you're just spraying it. You're missing in all directions and then you stand there just bound up and not even knowing what to do. For many, that's the Christian life. I can miss anywhere at any moment. So, it begins at the mind, and it transforms the heart, and then ultimately it plays out in the doing. And this is really the heart behind Romans 12. That chapter began like this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we come to the Bible, and we've got these minds that have been deformed. They've been deformed by our own sin. They've been deformed by the devil. They've been deformed by the waters that we're swimming in in the world around us. And then what we see when we come here is something massive. If you come to the scriptures and you're not seeing something massive and frightening and big and otherworldly and outside and above and beyond anything we know in the rest of creation, then you've probably missed. So we come to the scriptures and we see something that is so much bigger and scarier and more powerful and more holy than anything we could ever imagine and we find ourselves scared and we find ourselves confused and we just want to give up and go straight to the doing. Just give me 10 points on how to fix my marriage. Just give me three points to how to fix my finances. Just give me some better ways for living. But if by the grace of God, he keeps us there. If he doesn't allow us to pull away and he, he keeps us there, then he sends his spirit to bring us to understand. It's only then that our lives can be really transformed. Not just in the walking, but in the desires for the walking. He transforms our desires and our passions. And then it plays itself out. Our entire way of life changes. People who once knew us before Christ Jesus, people who once knew us before this spiritual transformation, they don't even know who they're looking at anymore. Many times you'll find they don't want to be around you any longer because it's so off-putting. It's so, it's so uncomfortable. 
Even as you seek to bless them and to love them and to be patient and kind and gentle and forbearing with them, you'll find them pulling further away because they don't know what to do with this person that's actually seeking and striving to live a holy life. More scary than that, you actually look like you mean it. And you're having fun while you're doing it. But this must be the pattern. So this word for eager, if you look it up in a Bible lexicon, it says to be especially conscientious in discharging an obligation. The King James translation has endeavoring. The NASB says to be diligent. The NIV says to make every effort. Beloved, this is now our sixth, seventh, eighth week considering together this this chunk of scripture here in Ephesians 4. And I just ask you the question, not to condemn you and not to cause you to feel badly, but to challenge you. What real efforts have you made? Reform-minded folks like us that understand and even have learned to embrace and find joy in the reality that We were utterly incapable of doing anything to please God apart from his hand. Understanding the depravity of man and how every part of who we are has been touched and changed by sin. For many of us, what can happen is we can sit in a room like this and you can hear a word about patience or humility or whatever it is. And you can feel real badly about yourself. And if you're not, com- if you're not careful, you can find yourself like a pig just learning to waller in that self-hatred and that pity. And you feel badly about who you are and you see how it elevates your thoughts about who God is, knowing how low you are and how low you stooped and where you were when he found you. But then you leave this place and you don't make any efforts. You believe in the sovereignty of God and you know that he's got to send his spirit to change your heart if anything real's going to happen. But then you completely separate that from all the calls in scripture that says, now go do. Go work harder than all the rest. Oh, it's not your work. It's not your power. It's the power of God working through you. But work, do, walk, run, strive, be diligent. So I ask you, how are you doing? Do you leave all this doctrine here at the door? If I were to ask your wife and your children, how would they say that you're doing? See, here's what happens for me, just a pattern for my life. As I get ready to shut down my, my office for the day, there's one last prayer before I leave, and I go back into my back study, and I kneel before God, and I thank him for the day, and I ask his blessing on my efforts, and I ask him to prepare my heart as I come home to the most precious people in my life, my daughters and my wife, and I say, God, especially right now, make me humble and patient, and gentle and forbearing and, 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 I, and I seek him and I cry out to him and I ask him to transform me and then I walk in the house and there's something on the floor I don't like. Sometimes I don't even make it home. I'm driving home and there's a guy meandering in the road or something. And all of that just goes right out the window. And I forget about making any efforts in that time. I just think, well, I'll just try again tomorrow. No ability to hit the reset button. No ability to ask God in that moment to to reconcile my heart with the truth of what he's revealed here. So I I challenge you as we're coming to the end of these traits and these markers of the worthy walk. We're not done with Ephesians 4, not by a long shot. But as we come to the end of these, I ask you, what efforts have you made? And I encourage you to make the efforts. To actually do something about these things. So... Obviously, this is not a call to just an emotion or a feeling. This isn't even just a call to purely to an attitude or to a, to a posture. It's an activity. It's a persistence in and a pursuit of the thing that you have come to value. You see, you tell me, I value patience and I value gentleness and I value unity and I value forbearance, but you don't live it? Don't tell me how much you love something while you're not giving yourself over to the pursuit of it. And so this word here for... Being eager, it is translated in Hebrews 4.11 as to strive. Let us therefore strive to enter the rest of God. God is saying, have you you trusted that I've got a greater rest yet to come? 
Have you trusted that in heaven there will be a once and for all resting in the accomplished work of Christ Jesus? Then strive to enter into it. If you're not striving, either you don't believe it or you don't value it. In the end of a number of Paul's letters, Titus, 2 Timothy, 1 Thessalonians, he'll use this word, do your best to come to me. That's that same word for eagerness. Do your best to come to me. He's saying, do you love me? Do you value my ministry? Do you value our friendship? Because if you do, you'll do your best to get to me. You'll make efforts to get to me. At great cost even to yourself, you'll get to me. That, that's the picture of this eagerness. That's the picture of this diligence. I'm doing my best. And so we do well to ask then. If this is the pattern, this is the way that it works. It begins with the things that you know. It begins in the mind and it transforms the heart and then it plays itself out in the doing. We might do well to ask, okay, where am I meant to fix my eyes then? If I can't skip all this and go straight to the doing and have it be real and enduring, what kinds of things am I meant to see in Christ Jesus? Where would God have my eyes fixed in order to have any hope of my heart being transformed and it playing out in my walk? Well, my mind this week went to 1 John. You remember that in this letter, the apostle has got a, a number of tests, a number of examinations that we can hold our life up against to figure out, is this thing real? Am I really of the faith? And one of those is our love for one another. And so in the fourth chapter, he says this, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this is the love of God, excuse me, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So that we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Skipping down to verse 20 it says, If anyone says that I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. How's that for some repetition? Do you think he has a point? Do you think that apparently there's a problem amongst professing believers that claim to love God? They claim to know God. They claim to have God abiding in them and them abiding in God. All the while, they're failing to love their brothers. Clearly so. And what he's trying to show us is, is that true love, it's all grounded in God. Because God is love by nature. You realize that the sending of Christ Jesus to die upon the cross, to raise again and to bring us with him in reconciliation to the Father, that's not what made God loving. It was the love of God that sent his son. That is the clearest way, the most powerful picture that the love that, of the love that God has had from us, for us from eternity past. It's the sending of his son for our salvation. Therefore, if that God who is love by nature... If he abides within us, we can't help but be a loving person. The whole of our lives marked by love. Not just love, a, a concept of love, a vague picture of love, but a peculiar kind of love, especially for those people whom God's redeeming love has fallen on. A love for one another. If anyone lacks this kind of love, what does he say? You're a liar. It's not nice to call people liars. Did nobody tell God that? He says, you prove yourself to be a hypocrite and a liar. The God who is love cannot dwell in you and leave you loveless. John says it's an utter impossibility. But if anyone has come to know this God, has received the love of this God, if anyone does find that God is abiding in him and he is abiding in God, if anyone, how did he begin it? 
has been born of God. He will find himself not only himself not only loving the God whom he once hated, but loving those who God loves. So just as what happens, I want you to think about this picture, what it means to be born of, born of God. There's this inexplicable desire to please and to honor God that wasn't there previously. You know, many people, they act as though it's, it's a shock when they find out that apart from being in Christ Jesus, that they're an enemy of God. They're at enmity with God. It's shocking them to learn, shocking to them to learn that not everybody in the whole wide world is considered a child of God, but rather a son of the devil and an enemy of God. But I think it's more shocking to many people when they recognize that they had hatred back towards God. They didn't have true love towards God, and that love was that lack of love was manifest in the fact that they weren't serving him, they weren't honoring him, they weren't worshiping him, they weren't obeying him. So part of what happens by this new birth, being born again, is there is just this inexplicable love for God that wells up in your heart. You have a desire to hear his voice and a desire to sing his praises. And at the same time, what John is saying here is there's suddenly also a very real and supernatural affinity for his children, for his people, men who are once strangers, even enemies. This is the love he's talking about, a love that is grounded in God's love. Not merely a reflection of his love. You understand this, right? It isn't just saying, look at the way God loves you. Why can't you be more like that? Look at the way that God loved you and gave his son. You got to try harder to be like that. He's saying, if the God who gave his son dwells in you, you will love. Guaranteed, unmistakable, unfailable, 100 times out of 100. If God who is love dwells in you, you will love. It's his work. It's all his work. That's why Paul uses the word maintain here instead of create or originate. He says maintain because this unity, this love that we have for one another, it isn't a thing that we can create. It must originate with God. I want you to think about that passage that David read to us earlier out of 1 Samuel 18. If you come back tonight, that's the text that I plan on preaching from, God willing. We're going to look at this special relationship between Jonathan and David. But I want you to just hear the way that the scripture records it for us. First Samuel 18, it says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Do you think that Jonathan woke up that day and said, Today's the day I fall in love with David. Today's the day I knit my own soul to David. No, I promise you, if you had been there in that day and you'd have asked Jonathan, what just happened? He would have said, I don't know, but I love this guy. I feel like we're one person all of a sudden. I want a covenant with this guy. I want to make an agreement with this guy. I want to be with this guy. And I don't know why. That's the picture. You wake up one day and you love people that there's no reason for you to love. You're bound and you're knit to people that there's no explanation for it other than there must be something between us. There must be something outside of us that has worked upon us and brought this unity and this, this love. And this is so critical because it can be so tempting for churches to try and manufacture this kind of unity. Like we know that it's God's desire for us to be unified one with another. We, we know that that's the only way to have a healthy and a thriving church. We know that this is the only way for God to be honored. And, and so we've got this desperate desire to, to bind ourselves together and, and, and to knit our souls together in love. And so we feel great pressure to figure out how can we manufacture it. And when we don't find it coming, what do we do? We start experimenting with things. Just, just throwing stuff against the wall to try to figure out what can stick. What, what can we build this unity on? And then when the unity doesn't come because the stuff we're trying doesn't stick, what do we do? We find the least, the lowest common denominator. Whatever thing we can agree on, we just start throwing everything we have at that. That becomes our identity. That becomes our focus. That becomes really the, the bounding or the, uh, the basis for our unity. And in the end, it all crumbles. In the end, it all proves to be a shell game or a house of cards. Because it's not grounded on the one thing that God has told us it must be grounded on. His love pulsating through us. His love working through us. 
So we've got to realize that this is not a thing that we can do. Our role is to maintain it. Much like Adam in the garden, what was he called to do? Eagerly keep watch over it. This thing that God has created to cling to it, to guard it, to, to hold on to it and to persevere it, to preserve it. But this is a thing that God must do in us. And therefore, if this is a thing that God has to do in us, and this is a thing that is brought on by the new birth, then you realize what this means. It means that the non-believer cannot participate in and enjoy unity like this. They particularly can't enjoy unity like this with the people of God who are filled with the Spirit of God. But I submit to you, they can't enjoy unity like this with anyone. Now, you might be tempted to challenge that statement. You might say, well, wait a minute. What about the non-believing mother and her child? Surely, there's, there's no love on the face of the earth like the love that a mother has for her child. And that's an absolute true statement. The, the love and the bond and the, and the sense of oneness. She was... The child was in the mother's womb and she sustained her life and then nursed her once she was born and, and, and cuddled her and cared for her for all these years. So yes, absolutely, there is a bond and a unity unlike anything else in all creation. But the unity that the Apostle Paul is talking about here is not just earthly bonds of, of human affection. Th this word for unity here, it's only used one other time, as best I can tell. It's only used one other time in the entire New Testament. And it's found in verse 13 of Ephesians 4, where he talks about the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. But the root word for that Greek word unity, it's the word one. It's a state of oneness. So this Christian unity isn't merely people that determine that they're going to commune together. That they're going to group themselves up based on race or politics or affluence or, or interest or what, whatever it is. This isn't just a group of people that says, hey, you look cool. Let's hang out for a bit. There's something much deeper here. And this isn't even just the people that are tied together. Whether we're talking about familial or romantic or religious love of some sort binding them together. It's much deeper than this. It's a people who have been acted upon by the Spirit of God and made into one new man in Christ Jesus. It was like Jonathan and David shared a soul. They were one. They were knit together. That's why Paul calls it here a unity of the Spirit. Now there's no capitalization in the original Greek and so you don't you don't know whether this is spirit with a capital S or spirit with a lowercase s. And some people think it's a lowercase spirit, as in either the spirit of man or the spirit of men. The spirit of man, like in verse 23, where it says that we've been renewed in the spirit of our minds. Or the spirit of men, as in the spirit or the temperament or the disposition of a particular group. You'll, you, you can say of a team, maybe you go in the locker room, you go, man, they've got a real spirit of camaraderie. They've got a real spirit of, of confidence. And so some people think that's what he's talking about here. But I think that context makes clear. He's talking about capital S spirit, as in the Holy Spirit. If you just look at what comes in those next verses that we read, there is one body and one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the Holy Spirit he's saying here. He's saying this is a unity of the spirit. Now, I don't think that he's talking primarily when he says of, he's not talking primarily about possession. I don't think he's primarily talking about the fact that this is a unity that belongs uniquely to the Spirit of God. I think he's talking about something that emanates from, that is given and maintained by the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit comes and he takes that which the Father had planned from eternity past and what the Son had accomplished in the fullness of time and he applies it to us here and now. The whole thing is the work of the Holy Trinity. All that God does, God does. Everything comes from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Everything returns by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. But there's a unique way in which the Spirit of God comes and applies these things to us. Namely, this morning, this unity. So I ask you to think back with me to Ephesians chapter 2. A lot of this are things that we have touched on back there. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, but God made us alive together with Christ. Who was the actor? It was God. Verse 6 says that he raised us up with him 
Verse 13 says that we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14 says that Christ himself has made us both one. Verse 15 says that he has created one new man in the place of two. All throughout that passage, it is all the things that God has done. The unity that God has built. And then, you remember, we got to those beautiful pictures of what we are. What are we thinking about when we talk about the church? And you remember it was that we are no longer strangers or aliens or men in exile, that we are now citizens of the kingdom of God. Remember that we are members of the household of God. We are living stones being built into that house itself. And then verse 23, excuse me, 22 says that in Christ, you're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we come to this picture of this unity, and firstly, we've got to recognize how dearly it cost the Father. It cost him the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Something much more valuable than silver or gold or any earthly thing. It cost the giving of his son. And yet, despite the value of the thing that God has given up, despite the promise of what is being offered in Christ Jesus, it is utterly useless to us unless we apprehend it by faith. Therefore, the Holy Spirit has to come. And what is it? What did it say in 1 John 4? It said we must be born again. The work of the Holy Spirit, making us into a new creature, new creation with new desires, removing the heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. And our very first act, our very first act as these new people is to see the beauty of the gospel and to believe, to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And therefore, we've been placed by grace through faith into Christ. You realize that's the picture, right? Paul very rarely refers to himself or to us as Christians. He says that we are people in Christ. So you've got the Father giving the Son an incredible cost to himself. You've got the Spirit coming and leading us to repentant faith. And by that faith, we are joined to Christ. We find our life and our living and our, and our being in Christ. That's who we are. But more than this, by this baptism, we're not just joined to Christ. We're joined to Christ as the head, and the rest of those who are joined to Christ is one body. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 says. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. In other words, as the Holy Spirit has come and he has called dead men to life, given us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe and cherish what God has done by faith. He's not just joining us to Christ Jesus, but he's joining us one to another in Christ forever. So there's, there's much more for us to unpack as we get to verses 4 and 5 and 6. And God willing, we will expound upon this picture a little bit more. But for this morning, you've got to see that we are intimately and eternally one in Christ Jesus by the work of his spirit. That, that's what he's doing. And therefore, apart from the spirit, there is no unity like this. Unless the spirit of God is dwelling in you, unless the spirit of God has come and caused you to be in Christ Jesus through repentant faith, you'll never have unity like this. But the positive side of this is that if this spirit dwells in you and if you have been born of God, then this unity that we enjoy, it cannot ultimately be severed. It, it can't be broken. This isn't a temporary union of convenience or of preference. This isn't a temporary union based on how much I like you and how much you like me. This is a thing that's been ordained and accomplished by God. That's why in that same letter, John would go on to say, 1 John 2, 19, that they went out of us. There were people who were abandoning these people. They were, they were forsaking the church and the saints and their gathering. And he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. He's saying those who would forsake the body, it proved that they would never, never had a place there. It would prove that they were never joined together by the work of the Spirit. They were never truly found in Christ. So he says, verse 3, that we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This word for bond, it's the same word that's translated ligaments in Colossians 2. Talking about the things that connect the body together. Colossians 2.19 talks about the knitting of the body together. This is something li living and vital and, and organic. 
Again, what was the word that was used of Jonathan to David? That they were knitted together as if they had one soul. He loved him as his own soul. It's as if we're one person. Isn't that biblical language? It's as if we're one body and one people under the headship of Christ and we're bound together like ligaments hold joints together. Again, this isn't a thing that is just temporary. This isn't a thing that is based on what does us well in the moment. This is a living, active, vital union. So Paul, he's writing this and he uses a very similar word for bound when he talks about himself as being a prisoner. Paul himself was bound. He was either bound to a jailer, he was bound to a room or a cell of some sort. He was unable to leave even if he wanted. But those circumstances would eventually change. Either Paul would be found not guilty and he would be released or Paul would be beheaded. He would have his life taken. He would be ultimately released into the care of God. This bond that he experienced, as strong as it was, it was only temporary. But the bond and the unity and the oneness that's accomplished by the Spirit of God in a church like this one, it's not temporary. It's not a thing that can be broken. It endures. How long does it endure? How about eternity? Whenever I meet with couples and I talk about what God has done in the, in the picture of a husband and a wife, Oftentimes, there's opportunity for me to remind them that at death, this marriage ceases. That in heaven, you won't be husband and wife, but you will still be brother and sister. And I encourage them because oftentimes, usually the wife and not the husband gets sad. What do you mean? And I, and I assure them in that moment that, listen to me, you need to understand that your husband's love for you will not be diminished because you will not any longer primarily be his wife, but his sister. In fact, what you will find is it is elevated. His love for you will only grow. But that this union, this bond, this thing that God is building, it endures forever and ever and ever. So you better learn to like each other. It's a bond, he says, of peace. You remember back in chapter 2, I'm finding Paul now starting to return to some of these words that we have previously seen back in the indicative portion of his letter. Back in chapter 2, he talked about Christ himself being our peace. In chapter 6, he's going to call this the gospel of peace. But perhaps most tellingly, you remember the way that he began this whole letter? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the way we conclude every single one of our services. And you remember that this peace isn't just the absence of conflict. This isn't just a nice little add-on to the Christian life. It's at the very core of what the gospel is meant to lead us to. I read to you back then, and I'm sure you've forgotten, so I'll read it again this morning, a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, No two words are more important in the whole of our faith than these, grace and peace. Grace is the beginning of our faith and peace is the end. Grace is the fountain, the spring, the source. It's that particular place in the mountain from which the mighty river you see rolling into the sea starts its race. Without it, there would be nothing. Grace is the origin and the source and the fount of everything in the Christian life. But what does the Christian life mean? What is it meant to produce? The answer is peace. What God has come to bring, again, not just an absence of conflict, not just the removal of disdain, but by the blood of Christ Jesus as he is reconciling us to himself. He loves us. He seeks to do us good. He says, I am your God and you are my people. And that means all that I am as God, I am for your good. He's saying, likewise, it's same bond of peace. The same bond of peace that we enjoy between ourselves and God, it extends horizontally. What did he say back in that same chapter? That in his flesh, Christ Jesus has come and broken down the dividing wall of hostility between the, the most hardy of enemies, between the Jews and the Greeks. He says God has come in Christ Jesus and he is breaking down these barriers. Not just bringing a ceasefire or a truce, but bringing real peace, real unity. A real union in this one spirit. So this unity to God, unity to one another, it comes by the spirit and the bond of peace. And I think probably we see the most beautiful picture of this in all the scripture at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. I want you to think about that 
high priestly prayer that we find in John 17. We're coming to the end of Jesus' life, and I think where God is leading us as a congregation is as we move towards, Easter's going to be here before you know it, and as we, as we move into that season, I think God would have us as a people kind of study together that whole upper room experience, John 13 through John 17, just place ourselves there, just the intimacy of everything that Christ was revealing, but there's perhaps nothing that seems more precious than listening to him as he prayed to the Father. The kind of things are on his heart as he prepares to make his departure and to, to leave those that he has just spent the last three years pouring into, knowing that he's kneeling in the shadow of the cross and everything that that might mean. And, and there's, there's a beauty here. You, you, you see, as Jesus, he leaves here and he goes into the garden and he prays to the Father and he's saying, God, if there's, a, there's another way, let's do that. I don't want to drink from this cup. If it's possible, allow it to pass for me. I trust in you and your will, not mine, be done. But, Father, I don't want to do this. But you can sense in John 17 this resignation, this understanding. No, this, is, this has happened. So John 17, 20 says this. He, he's already prayed on behalf of those that are there in that room. He has already prayed that they might see his glory. He has already, he's already prayed that... They might live as one, but now he shifts to us. John 17, 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That's us. How have you come to believe in Christ Jesus? A preacher, a teacher, a Sunday school leader, a, a parent? What word did they share with you? It was the witness of the apostles. And so he's saying, I pray not just for those that are here in this room right now, but for those who will eventually come to believe through their word. What's he praying for us? What is Jesus' utmost desire for us? What does he say? That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you understand what's at stake here? He's saying as they enjoy this oneness, as they enjoy this unity, the world sees that and they believe that you have sent me, Father. They believe that I am who I say I am. Those of you that were here last Sunday night, we worked together through Titus 2, and there's some very startling words there, at least to me, as, as I read these warnings against, there's a particular way that the professing Christian can live. There's a particular way that they can walk, and it can cause others to revile the word of God. You hold on to the truth. The truth is the truth whether the world believes it. The truth is the truth whether you live it out or not. But there's a particular way you can live that gives them ammo, that causes them, that leads them to revile the truth. But then he concludes that section that we read there by saying there's another way of living. And by this way of walking and living and relating to one another, you can adorn the gospel. Make it beautiful. Make it seem for what it is. And what he's saying here in this upper room discourse, in this prayer to the Father, he's saying, listen, as you are one, just as I and the Father am one, you do this and you live this out so that the world may believe that you have sent me, Father. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Beloved, go home and just meditate on, read the whole of John 17, but just meditate on these three verses. Be a good use of the Lord's day to meditate on the Son's prayer to the Father on your behalf. And he's saying, what I most desperately want these people to know and the world to recognize is that you love them the way you loved me. Those words enough should be more than sufficient to drive your worship for a billion years. The Father loves me like he loves the Son. Because I'm in the Son. Because I'm one with the Son. And he's saying, as you come to comprehend this love that I have. This love that I have for my son, this love that is spilled out onto you for the sake of my son. And, and you hear him praying back to the father. Christ Jesus always praying in accordance with the father's will. There's, there's a promise here that he's pleading back to the father. Father, you promised that this thing would come. And, and you notice how throughout 
John's gospel, but throughout this prayer, he's talking about the father's love for him more than his love for the father. What does he need before he goes to the cross? What does he need before he steps into the suffering? What does he need before the father turns his face away in those moments of darkness? He needs to remember this. The father loves me. And what do we need more than anything else to recognize he loves us in the same way? That in some very real and supernatural and unexplainable way, we have been folded into the love of the triune God. What was God doing in eternity past? What was he doing before he created the universe? You know the answer. Loving. Father, Son, Spirit, in perfect, loving communion and unity, one with another. He's saying, you've been swept up into all of this. And my prayer as you comprehend this and you wrestle with this is that you yourselves would be one as I and the Father am one. So united, so inseparable, so bound in love and peace that nothing could ever separate you. Do you see it? This is more than committees. This is more than interest groups. This is more than votes. This is living and active and vital and spiritual and precious and enduring He's going to go on to say in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The whole thing ends with us basking in glory. With us seeing glory and becoming glorious together. You realize you don't all get your own room in heaven. You you don't get these one-on-one meetings with Jesus while you then go out and do your own thing. He's bound us together for eternity. So we enjoy his love and we are one, even as he and the Father are one. That's that's the picture. And that's the thing that we're called to, to preserve and to protect and to be eager to maintain. It's the ultimate purpose for what he's doing here. That he might be glorified and seen. As we're bound together as one. And therefore, the greatest threat to a church like ours is this. Clearly, Jesus is saying it's a threat to his name and to his reputation and to the way in which the world receives his word. That we can live in a way that can cause people to revile and hate the word of God. And one of those ways isn't cussing and drinking and fighting and stealing and philandering and all the rest. It might just be we don't love each other like this. We don't live like one people. So the greatest threat, not just to the name, but also to the health and the well-being of this church, his bride, is this. Again, not just being open to it, not, not just being willing to enjoy unity, but pursuing it, endeavoring and being eager for it. And once we have that, you recognize that the world can't get us. They can lie and they can slander and they can threaten and they can pick it outside. They can make all kinds of noise while we're in here trying to have worship. They can lock down and seize all of our resources. They can withhold access to goods and services. That's coming. You know this, right? You play our game. You say our words. You affirm our debauchery. Or we're going to withhold access to goods and services. They can take away this building. They can throw us in jail. They can beat our bodies. They can torture our flesh. They can take our physical lives. But again, I tell you, They can't get us. Not really get us. They can break us apart and lock us all in individual cells. But the same spirit that was in Christ, the same spirit that filled Christ throughout the whole of his earthly ministry, that same singular spirit is in each one of us. You think cells can break us apart? You think cells can hinder the work that God has done? No, no. So what's the greatest threat to us? Because how many churches have been destroyed without a single shot being fired? (laughs) The communists hadn't showed up yet and locked our front doors. And how many churches are locking their front doors precisely because of this? They just killed themselves. How? They didn't pursue unity and patience and peace and gentleness and humility. And they didn't bear with one another in their sins. They didn't need the world to kill them. They didn't need Satan to destroy them. They destroyed themselves at this point right here. Therefore, we must be eager, do our best, strive, be diligent, make every effort to preserve this union 
that God has given us. To rejoice in what he's given us. So, I did something I, I never normally do. I made you a list of applications. I was feeling froggy. So you put these in your pocket. Is that what you say? Put this in your pipe and smoke it. That's what I meant. Number one. Oh, I numbered them too. Number one. We take great care that we are constantly evaluating our focus and our aim. Drift comes incredibly easy. Many churches have started out on a, on a beautiful path. Beloved, we have spent years together laying a foundation and we have begun on a beautiful path. And we can drift into the ditch without ever noticing it. It can happen just like that. Drift happens when pain, when suffering, when loss, when annoyance, when all the things we've been talking about, when those things come, the drift happens. I used a phrase earlier that D.A. Carson referenced. We start settling for the lowest common denominator. We start lowering the barrier to entry. Remember, you, you can't be a part of this union if you're not in Christ. So we guard the front door and we, we discipline quickly. There's a phrase amongst people that think much about the church and the makeup of the church, and they say that what you win people with is what you win them to. If we start selling ourselves as something that we're not just to try to get people to like us, we experience this in a very real way with Telos, don't we? we? We'd like more children. We're like 26 kids, and we'd like to add more children. And so there can be this temptation to try to sell ourselves as something else to entice people to come. Well, now you've won them to something that you never meant to be. So what you do is you hold up who you are, and you say, this is who we are. We're people who believe and teach and abide by the whole counsel of God's word. That's why we have a membership class. You realize this. Any of you that have ever been through the membership class, what is it? It's essentially six hours of the gospel before we ever get to any of the doing around here. So we take great care to make sure that our focus is always right where it must be on the gospel of Jesus Christ and teaching and believing the whole counsel of his word. We make certain that whenever people in our church family begin to feel disconnected, we don't try to give them something or to lure them with something or entice them back in with something other than who we are. Other than the only thing that can build real unity. Number two, we must confront and lovingly correct anybody that threatens that unity. If, if we believe that this unity actually costs the precious blood of Christ Jesus. And if we believe that this unity is a thing that was brought about by a miracle of God, and we understand how precious, therefore, it is to him, then we, we can't help but respond when we see people threatening that unity. When we first began this section of scripture, our reading that day was from Proverbs 6. You probably remember it. Verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. He winks with his eyes. He signals with his feet. He points with his finger. I need you to listen to me. Sowing discord does not always look like somebody walking up to you and saying, I hate this church. Sowing discord very rarely looks like somebody coming up to you and saying, I want to destroy this body. What does he call it here? The wink of the eye, the signal with the feet, the pointing with the finger, the raise of the brow, the tone of the voice, the look on the face. You understand? I can say all the right words and do all the right things, all the while sending clear signals. I despise this body. Or I despise members of this body. So we must watch ourselves in this area. With perverted hearts, they devise evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon them suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, 
and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. Beloved, it can't be more straightforward than that. The Lord hates these things. They are an abomination to him. And I promise you, I've been guilty. I promise you there have been times, even unbeknownst, unbeknownst to me, when I was guilty of sowing discord. I'm not just talking about not striving for unity. I'm talking about doing the very thing that God has commanded us against. So, when we find ourselves face to face with someone engaged in this, we've got to rebuke them quickly. We've got to lovingly explain to them the thing that they are toying with. That's the bride of Christ. You can't love Christ and hate his bride. You realize this. A man and I like to laugh sometimes. I think sometimes people forget we're married. You know, come up to her and tell her all the things they don't like about me or all the things they don't like about our church. And she's like, you know, I go there and I kiss him. can't love Christ and hate his bride. He says, I died for her. Get your hands off. We've got to lovingly correct these people. But I'm, I'm just telling you right now, you've got every single right to look to someone who is speaking badly about your brothers and your sisters and this church who you love. You've got every right to look them in the face and say, you're talking about my family. Amen. Stop. You might do well to ask yourself, and no, I shouldn't say this because I just said people say it to a man. I would say, why do they think they can talk to you like that? You've got to be the kind of person they know, I, I better not go to that person bad mouth in First Baptist Crosby. For their sake and for the sake of the church, you call them to repent, knowing that in most cases, you're going to be accused of being the troublemaker. Because it's a tap of a toe, it's the wink of an eye, it's the point of a finger, and when you look at him and saying, you're talking about, whoa, 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 whoa. That's the sneaky nature of this sin. Number three, and most importantly, we've got to guard our own hearts. We've got to proactively work to maintain this unity and this sense of unity in ourselves. Everything that Paul has written here, everything that he wrote back in chapter 2, I kept trying to remind you that, look, while Paul is saying things that apply to the universal, invisible, global church, to the saints that existed in every place, at every time, and every area, era, all those saints that will be gathered around the throne in eternity, everything he says is meant to talk about the church, capital C, but it must also be true of the church, lowercase c. Faithful local congregations like, like this one right here. And so it's not just enough. You, you can't say, I love the church, but I hate the church. I love, I love the church, but I don't love the, the church. And so one of the things that we must fight hard against is we don't allow our eyes to wander. Look, the first time a man and I get in a fight, I don't get to go online to these dating sites just to check my options out and see what's out there. Nor should we when the church doesn't meet our standards, nor should we when we find ourselves offended, just kind of go out there and shop a little bit just to see what's out there. One of the commitments that a man and I made the, the day we were married was the D word will never be said. Because once you say it, it's easier to say it again and again and again. And beloved, if this is the thing that God has built, do you believe that God brought you here? Surely you do. You don't believe you landed, up, landed here by accident. And we must fight to maintain, even in our own heart, the sense of unity and, and oneness. And we must, more than just protecting against allowing our eyes to wander, we've got to press deeper. Listen, what are we trying to do whenever we build these opportunities for our people to spend time together? Look, there is value in just fellowship, just hitting each other with dodgeballs and eating ice cream and all kinds of stuff. There's, there's value. Maybe that's what we need is a couple of dodgeball games, like grown-up dodgeball games. might be good. I get Daniel Nelson on my team. But 
There's value in all that, but ultimately, what are we trying to do? We're trying to see the love of Christ. We're trying to behold the glory of Christ. We're preaching to each other the gospel, even by means of our mere presence. Beloved, if we will do this, if we will do this, we don't just survive as a church. You understand this. We thrive. And we grow. We're a part of something that God is building. Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for this unity that you've given us. In, in a very real way, Father, I am preaching to the choir this morning. We do feel like a unified people, and so I praise you for what you've given us, and I pray that you help us to work hard, to be eager to maintain it, to see ourselves bound together as one person, souls that are knit together in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that you help us to maintain that, to work hard towards it as we get up and leave this place. Father, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.